When we spoke last, we concluded with chapter 3 in the book of Esther. And as we conclude that chapter, we saw where Haman and the king sat down to a great feast. Even though there was a decree that had been put out that all the Jewish people in the Persian Empire were to be slain, it didn't bother Haman, didn't bother the king. They sat down as if nothing was going on and everything was normal. But the people in the city of Shushan were perplexed, which means they were somewhat confused, didn't understand why such a decree would be out there. Apparently, they had a good relationship with the Jewish people. So when this decree came that all the Jews were to be slain at a certain time, on a certain day, one year actually from the time that the decree was signed, the people were, again, confused about it. They were bewildered about it. But I want you to notice the different reactions here. As we start in chapter 4, we see a different reaction from Mordecai. Now, this time, we have looked at the king. We've looked at how Esther became queen. Uh, we have looked at the character, or lack of, you might say, of Haman and uh, Mordecai. And now we're about to see these four people uh, become very prominent in the days ahead. We see Mordecai, when he hears about the decree, he sits down in sackcloth and ashes. He rents his clothes. The word rent means to tear. He tears his clothes. He sits down in sackcloth and in ashes, and he mourns greatly. In the Old Testament day, when you seen someone in this condition, when you saw someone with their garments torn, when you seen them sitting down in sackcloth and ashes, it was symbolic of grief and sorrow, and sometimes repentance. In this case, obviously, is sorrow. This decree is a decree unto death. Mordecai and Esther and all their people, the Jewish people, have been sentenced to die at a certain time. Now, when you go to the 37th chapter of Genesis, we see an example of this when Joseph's brethren brought his coat unto their father Jacob. Remember how they'd sold uh, Joseph to the Ishmaelites. And then they took his coat off in the coat of many colors and they dipped it in the blood of an animal and brought it to the father Jacob. When Jacob saw it, he took the position that some wild beast had slain his son. He thought his son was dead. So what did Jacob do? He clothed himself with sackcloth and sat down and he mourned. This was an outward display of what's going on on the inside. We take a look at Job in Job chapter 1, after he got the, all the reports that came, how that the enemy had come and slew the servants and took the oxen and the sheep and the asses, etc. Then the report came about his children being slain. We find where Job shaved his head and he sat down in sackcloth and worshiped God. The Outward apparel here, or you might say what they did outwardly is a reflection of what was going on on the inside, in their hearts and in their souls. Whenever the news came to David, his men, that Jonathan and Saul had been slain. Read that in first chapter of 2 Samuel. You will find where David and his men all sat down in sackcloth and in ashes, and they mourned when they received the news that these two men, again, had been slain. A picture of people doing this in terms of repentance can be found in the book of Jonah. 
in the book of Jonah, we find in chapter 3, where Jonah has gone to the city of Nineveh to preach. Of course, you know, Jonah took a detour. The Lord commanded him to go to Nineveh in the beginning, and he didn't have to go through that whale experience, but I'm kind of glad he did. I like reading about it. <laughs> but we find where Jonah uh, was swallowed by a whale, and the whale spit him up on dry land. God prepared the great fish, and then God spoke to the fish, commanded the fish, and the fish spit him up on dry ground. And the Lord tells us in Matthew chapter 12, it was a whale. Then Jonah decided it was, it was just a good idea to obey the Lord. And so he went to Nineveh, and he preached. And he preached powerfully. And it says the people of Nineveh believed him. Now, we're talking about a people in the, in the Assyrian Empire at the time that were very brutal people. But the people believed the message of Jonah. And the king gave command that everybody should repent in sackcloth and in ashes from the greatest unto the least. And they all did. And you know, it was effective. Uh, it did reflect what they felt on the inside. And the Bible says they believed the message of Jonah. And of course, it's interesting that Jonah preached one of the most effective messages recorded in history. An entire city of people repented. That's what a preacher's always wanting to see. He's wanting to see people repent, see God's people turn from this world back to the Lord. And, and Jonah saw it in a way that had never been seen before, maybe since. People repented, the entire city repented, and God was going to destroy this city. If they had not repented, God was going to destroy it. But they believed the preaching of Jonah. And Jonah got out of sorts with the Lord about it. You know, he became a pouting preacher. Uh, he wanted to see the Lord destroy them. And when you understand their history, you understand what kind of people they were, it's more understandable why Jonah would have this attitude. But the Lord didn't call Jonah to judge here. The Lord called Jonah to preach. He called him to go and preach to the city, the inhabited city of Nineveh, which Jonah did. And they believed him, and they repented in sackcloth and in ashes. You'll read this numerous times in the Old Testament. When you saw somebody again, when their clothes were torn, they put sackcloth around them. Uh, they sat down in ashes. It was symbolic of some great tribulation that they were going through or the very fact that they felt a great need to repent. This is where Mordecai is. Mordecai has rent his garments. He's put on sackcloth. He's sat down in ashes. He's at the gate of the city. And then it says all the Jews there in Shushan who had gotten the report, they, they did likewise. And as each Jew, I'm sure, throughout the kingdom heard this, this decree that at a certain time, a certain day, in a certain month, about one year from the time they read it, a death sentence hung over them. You can understand the great grief and sorrow that they felt within their hearts. So Mordecai is going to do this to symbolize what he's going through, but those who see him doing this don't quite understand. You see, Esther does not know anything about the decree. But the news comes to her. Her maids see Mordecai at the gate of the city. Now Mordecai holds an official position. And the Bible says it was not lawful for a man to enter into the gate with sackcloth and ashes. See, there's one thing about the Oriental kings and the kings of that day, these empires. They didn't want anybody around them that looked sad. They didn't want anybody around them that uh, symbolized bad news. See, that was the case of Nehemiah when you read about Nehemiah's life. Remember when Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And one day Nehemiah was very sad. And he, it was a risk. Nehemiah would have a sad countenance. But Nehemiah was such a faithful employee. He was such a faithful cupbearer 
the king has such great respect uh, concerning Nehemiah that he asked Nehemiah what the problem. He says, I know there's a problem here. Are you sick or whatever? Then Nehemiah realized God had opened up a door of opportunity for him and Nehemiah prayed. Here's one of those quick emergency prayers. He just, he just prayed quickly. No details are given about that prayer. And the Lord heard that prayer and opened up the door in Nehemiah and he was able to make his request made known unto the king. See, the king here, this king here lived in a palace. He, he lived, uh, he might say, uh, in a fake utopia. <laughs> he didn't want to hear bad news, negative news. He didn't want anybody around. And it was unlawful for somebody to come into the gate dressed like Mordecai. And when Esther got the news, she was very concerned about it. So she sent him clothes. She didn't know what the problem was. She's ignorant at this point. She's in the dark concerning this decree that Haman has come up with. That he's gotten the king to sanction, gotten the king to sign the decree. It's become official. And there was another law, the Medes and Persians, that once the king signed a law into effect, it was irreversible. The king himself could not reverse his own law. <laughs> Seems kind of uh, strange that the king who could put that law into effect and him being the dictator he was couldn't reverse his own law. Well, that was a law of the Medes and the Persians. And so the Jewish people seem to feel very hopeless, as you can understand. Esther does not know anything about this. Now, up to this time, what do we really know about Esther? We know she's a Jew. We know she is the niece of Mordecai. We know that she is the queen. But that's about all we know about her. But we're going to learn a lot more about her in chapter 4. And when the queen hears this from Maze that her uncle Mordecai who has a government job, so to speak. He's at the gate of the city, and yet he's not dressed as normal. He, he's dressed in sackcloth and ashes. He ran his outer garments. She knows something's wrong, but she don't know what it is, so she thinks she can take care of the situation by sending him clothes to put on to replace it. Well, you know, you can put on all the new clothes you want to. That's not going to drive sorrow away. You know, sometimes people are going through things, and they think they can spin their way out of it. And, you know, they're, they're going through some great trial or tribulation, distress or whatever. And so they'll go to town and they'll buy them new clothes. They put on new clothes, maybe new shoes, put on new shoes. But it doesn't solve the problem, does it? That's not the solution to the problem. It doesn't pu push away the sorrow. It doesn't push away the grief. And so clothes is not the solution here. But I commend Esther because she knows it would not be a good thing if the king came out of the palace and went down toward the gate and saw Mordecai there in sackcloth and ashes, it would not be good for Mordecai. The king would not be happy. The king would not be pleased. So verse 4, So Esther's maids and her chambers came and told it her. Then was the queen exceedingly grieved, and she sent raiment to clothe Mordecai. She has good intentions to take away a sackcloth from him, but he received it not. So why did he receive it? Well, what's she doing in sackcloth and ashes to begin with? Because of this decree, these clothes she sent that he can put on uh, doesn't change anything. It's not going to change the decree. It's not going to change uh, their future. It's not going to change anything. Now, Esther meant well. Remember, Esther's in the dark at this point about this. Verse 5, Then called Esther for Hatak, one of the king's chamberlains, whom he had appointed to attend upon her, and gave him a commandment to Mordecai to know what it was and why it was. She wants to know what's going on. Why are you dressed like this? Why are you in this sackcloth and ashes? And Mordecai told him of all that happened unto him, of the sum of the money that Haman had promoted 
uh, a promise to pay to the king's treasures for the Jews to destroy them. So Mordecai now tells this chamberlain, he tells this messenger that Esther has sent, he tells him what's going on. And then he gave him a copy of the writing of the decree that was given at Shushan to destroy them, to show it unto Esther and to declare unto her and to charge her that she could go unto the king to make supplication unto him and make requests before him for her people. When he said, charge, give this charge to Esther, that she would go to the king, make requests for her people, Mordecai is letting the cat out of the bag even further. Because now the messenger knows that Esther is not one of the Persians. Now he's let the cat out of the bag from the standpoint of letting more people know that he and Esther are Jews. Now, when you begin to read the book of Esther, if somebody said, uh, uh, are you familiar with the name of Haman? You'd probably say yes. If you remember uh, uh, or familiar with the name of Esther, you would say yes. Are you familiar with Mordecai's name? You would say yes. But how many people would say yes? Are you familiar with Hatak's name? He just mentioned a couple of times here. But I'm going to tell you, he played a very important role. He's a messenger with a great deal of responsibility placed upon him. He's got to carry a message from Esther to Mordecai. He's got to carry a message from Mordecai back to Esther. They can't text. They can't send emails. Mordecai cannot go and see Esther. He doesn't have that permission. He doesn't have that freedom. He doesn't have that liberty. You see, Haman has put forth his plan, and his plan is to slay all the Jewish people. So that's why he came up with this decree, got the king to sign it. That's his plan. Well, what's Mordecai's plan? You say, well, that's not much of a plan. Uh, it's more of a plan than you think it is. When Mordecai rent his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, he got the attention of somebody who carried a message to Esther. Otherwise, how is he going to communicate with Esther? So this is his plan. But I might say it's not just his plan, it's God's plan. See, this book of Esther is all about the providence of God. When you read the book of Esther, you have to see God's providence all the way through it. And God never gets in a hurry about things, does he? See, the book of Esther opens up in the third year of the reign of the king. Well, it's going to be two years before he disposes of the original queen. Then four years pass before he replaces her with Esther. And three more years pass before Haman comes up with his decree. We're in the twelfth year of the king now. We've covered nine years from chapter one up to chapter four. Now, when you're just reading this, you might not realize that. But we are covering nine years of time. And now Esther is where she needs to be, as we will see just a little bit later on. We find that the messenger here is going to bring the message of Mordecai back to Esther. And he's going to inform Esther about this decree of Haman. And he charges her to go in to the king to make a request unto him for her people. Again, that means uh, that messenger, I believe, understood then that Esther was a Jew and so was Mordecai. Again, I want to emphasize the importance of this man. Let's suppose he gets the message wrong. Let's suppose he misunderstands the message. Tonight, earlier, somebody uh, said that Sister Sherry had cataract surgery. I didn't quite catch it. I said she had back surgery. <laughs> cataract, back, sounds a little similar, I guess. But uh, they said, no, no, she didn't have back surgery. She had cataract surgery. Well, 
If I hadn't said that, I might go around telling people, Sister Sherry had back surgery this week. Obviously, that would be incorrect. I get the message wrong. So let's say this messenger gets the message wrong. Let's suppose he doesn't tell it accurately. You see, Mordecai cannot see Esther. Esther cannot see him. And you know, when I communicate with somebody, I can do a lot better job of communicating if I see them face to face. Can't you? You know, streaming's wonderful. I know we got people watching tonight through streaming who can't be here, and I'm so thankful for that blessing. But uh, I really love to see people's faces when I preach. That's why somebody tells me, Brother Lawrence, you know, I, uh, I may not be able to be there this Sunday. If I'm not there, I'll send my spirit. Well, please do not. Please do not. I, I'm not comfortable about being around spirits uh, when they're separate from the body. Now, I know each one of you's got a spirit, but see, I don't see the spirit, and I just see you. I see the, I see the person, and, and I, I want to feel the Holy Spirit of God. I, I, I like being familiar with the Holy Spirit of God. But the Bible tells me in change, as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. So if you send your spirit, I think we're going to have a funeral in a couple of days. So that's not good news. I don't want that. And I can't see spirits. I don't know if they're sleeping, if they're awake, if they're nodding uh, in approval or nodding because they're sleeping. I just, I just can't see all that. So I prefer to see you, you see. Well, Mordecai, I cannot see Esther. He's depending on the accuracy of this messenger. Throughout the Bible, we find people who played important roles whose names we do not know. You ever think about the little lad that had the five loaves and two fishes? When Jesus is about to feed the multitude of people, 5,000 men besides women and children, you know, we don't know what his name was. I'd say he kind of played a pretty important role, don't you? He had the fishes and loaves, didn't he, that the Lord's going to take, going to bless, and they're going to distribute and feed everybody. I'd say he played a pretty important role. I don't know the name of the disciples that let the Apostle Paul over the wall there in Damascus in a basket. You know, Paul was on the road to Damascus to persecute the Lord's church, the Lord's people. Uh, but before he got there, he had that miraculous experience on the Damascus road, right? So when he got to Damascus, instead of persecuting God's people, he started preaching to God's people. And it, it stirred a lot of people up. He had a lot of enemies there, and they made a plan to kill him, but his disciples put him in a basket, a large basket, like a hamper, and led him over the wall of the city so he should escape. I don't know one name of those disciples. Not one of them. I'd say they played a pretty important role, wouldn't you? The little maid that brought the message when Haman, excuse me, Naaman, you know, who had leprosy, the captain of the Syrian army had leprosy, and she tells her mistress, you know, she was a, a captive, a little captive maid, a Jewish maid. She was there and she said, oh, that uh, he might be back over there in the land where the man of God is. He, he could cure him of his leprosy. And sure enough, he went over there and finally after obeying what the prophet said, and he dipped himself in the river Jordan seven times, he came forth, you know, cleansed of his leprosy. I don't know that little maid's name, do you? I'd say she played a pretty important role, wouldn't you? You know, coming into sanctuary, we have four doors back there. They're big doors, they're wooden doors, they're very heavy doors. And if you used to take them off those hinges and lay them down, I doubt there's a man here that could pick up one of those doors and put it on his back and tote it away. Might be able to drag it away. But those doors have three hinges on it. Each one of them have three hinges. And those three hinges are very small. But the old adage is, big doors swing on small hinges. 
But those hinges there, those doors can open and close and swing back and forth, right? You don't think about the hinges, do you? You brag about how nice the doors are, how, how good looking the doors are, and what a blessing the doors are. But it's the hinges that keep the doors up there. It's the hinges that cause the doors to be able to swing back and forth. And so all the way through Scripture, there's people from time to time who may be small in a sense, but play very important roles, just like this man here is playing a very, very important role. And yet when you read the book of Esther, you probably didn't even remember his name. And somebody said, what about Hatag? Do you read him in Esther? Well, it's, I'm not sure I read about him in Esther. Well, if you go to chapter 4, you read about him in Esther. He played a very important role. He had to take a message. He had to take those clothes to Mordecai. He took a message back from him to Esther. And then he's going to take a message from Esther back to Mordecai. And Mordecai back to Esther. It's important that he got the message right. He played a very important role. Now, Mordecai sends him back to Esther. He tells him exactly what's going on. He gives him a copy of the writing. And he reveals it unto Esther. We come to verse 10. Again, Esther spake unto Hatak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai. All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whosoever man or woman shall come into the king into the inner court who's not called, there is one law of him, be put to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he might live. But I have not been called to come into the king these 30 days. See, the king and the queen were in separate quarters. She was not to come to the king unless the king called her, unless the king sent for her. And so the law applies to her like it does to anybody else. And here's the law. Nobody could come through that gate and approach the king unless he was called for. If he did, then it was a high risk. He would be slain. His only way of deliverance was if he caught the king on a good day. And sometimes kings had good days, sometimes they had bad days. And you, studying the king right here, you can tell uh, that he's very unpredictable. Would he hold out the golden scepter or would he not? She reminds Mordecai about this, about this law. I got to thinking about that. You know, when Israel came across the Red Sea, God gave them a law on top of Mount Sinai, didn't he? You go to Hebrews chapter 12, you're going to find a contrast between Mount Sinai and Mount Zion. It goes a little like this. He says, for you're not come unto the mount that quake. And fire came down upon it, and there was blackness and darkness and a great tempest. When God came down upon that mountain, it was an awful sight. And the Lord said, do not approach this mountain. He said, not even a beast, for if you do and you touch it, even a beast should touch it, he'd be struck dead. I'm glad we have something better than that today, don't you? He said, but you've come unto Mount Zion, the city of the living God, the new Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the God who's a judge of all, the spirits of just men made perfect. And he finally gets down unto Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant. That's what we can come to, and we can come freely, right? We don't have to fear coming unto the Lord Jesus Christ. But nobody could approach this king. Aren't you glad we got a king of kings and lord of lords that wants you to approach him? Or aren't you glad that there's a throne in heaven that we're told in Hebrews chapter 4 in verse 12? Uh, well, actually, let's go to verse 14. He says, for we, have, we, for we see we have a, um, a high priest that's passed into the heavens. 
Let us come boldly to the throne of grace. We might obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We have a throne in heaven that's occupied by a risen Savior. We have a throne in heaven where the resurrected Savior left this world about 2,000 years ago, ascended out of sight of those that watched him there in Acts chapter 1, went into heaven, sat down the right hand of the majesty on high. It's an occupied throne by a risen Savior, a victorious Savior, and we can come boldly to the throne of grace to obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. This is not the situation with Esther in this king. Here's an earthly king. He's an evil king. Here's a wicked king. He says, don't come to me if I hadn't sent you. If you come to me and I hadn't sent you, if I don't hold out the golden scepter, your life's going to be slain. But we're told in the book of James, if we draw nigh to God, he'll draw nigh to us. Again, we have an occupied throne. We have a, a wonderful throne in glory. It's not empty. It's not a throne of the law uh, like Mount Sinai was. See, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion, two great contrasts, aren't they? You know, they couldn't approach Mount Sinai, but we can approach Mount Zion. We can come unto Mount Zion. That's a picture of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can come here and worship God freely. You can come here anytime, all the time, and worship God freely without fear. You come here to seek comfort and peace and the presence of the Spirit of God, and God wants you to do this. He wants you to come and honor Him, and in turn, He'll honor you. Drawn out of God, He'll draw out of you. She says, she sends this message back to Mordecai. You, you know there's one law, Mordecai, about all of this. Mordecai was familiar with that law. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words, verse 13. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther. Now he's going to give her an answer in three parts. Let's notice them. The first thing he says. Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. You may be the queen, and you may be over here in the, in the place in the palace where the queen is and her maids and one thing and another. And it may seem like a refuge, it may seem like a sanctuary, it may seem like a place of safety, but think not if this decree goes forward, you are a Jew, and according to the decree, all the Jews are going to be slain. It says, you'll be slain too. Think not that you shall be delivered. Number two, for if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their enlargement and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. That's the second thing he tells her. Now for Mordecai to believe this, I know he had to be informed and knowledgeable about God's covenant. I know he had me familiar with what God told Abraham recorded in Genesis chapter 12. When he called Abraham, when he was known as Abraham from the land of the earth of the Chaldees, to leave that land, come to a land that I will show thee. When he got there, he tells Abraham, he says, I will bless them that bless thee, I will curse them that curse thee, and through thee and thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. He had to be familiar with that. That's a promise God made unto Abram. If the Jews are totally destroyed, that promise cannot be fulfilled. If the Jews are destroyed, that promise and many other promises cannot be fulfilled. And God gave that promise to Abraham, reiterated his son Isaac, and reiterated his son Jacob. Through them and their seed, his seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. When he told Abraham that, he wasn't talking about Isaac. Now Isaac was the seed of Abraham, the miraculous seed of Abraham. 
that Abraham had when he was 100 years of age. And his wife Sarah was 90. When that miraculous seed came forth and Isaac was born, a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he had a seed under consideration beyond that. And that seed was the Lord Jesus Christ. We come to the book of Galatians. The apostle Paul makes that very clear. He said the promise was unto Abraham and to his seed. Not in the seeds plural, but in the seed singular. That seed was Christ. Mordecai knows if the Jewish people are totally destroyed, that promise and many other promises connected to it, it cannot be fulfilled. He does not know how the deliverance will come. He does not know where it will come from. But he knows our deliverance will come one place or another. But right now, it needs to come through Esther. So, he says, deliverance will come from another direction. But you and your household will be destroyed. And then number three. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Isn't that a wonderful statement? I mean, this is one of the most well-known statements in the Bible. Whether knowest thou that thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Now, historically speaking, from the biblical perspective, we have a number of examples of that. Who could have ever believed that Joseph would, could have gone from a pit by himself, seemingly helpless and hopeless, and the day would come that this man who was put into a pit by his brother that envied him and hated him would one day be delivered out of that pit by evil design, sold to the Ishmaelites, down to Egypt's land, becomes a servant in Potiphar's house, from a servant becomes a prisoner in the prison, and from the prison he winds up second to Pharaoh in the land of Egypt. Was he a man of the hour or what? Was he in the right place at the right time? From a providential point of view, he certainly was. It was Joseph that told the king there's going to be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine. And through his wise management that God gave unto him, the wisdom he gave unto him, he managed the affairs of the kingdom so that when they had the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine came, they didn't all perish. Had they not managed the seven years of plenty properly, they'd all perish, including the Jewish people and the promise of God would not have been fulfilled. And what about Moses? When you read of Moses, in the first chapter of Moses, what do you see? You see Moses a little baby. And Moses in an, as an ark of bulrushes in the Nile River. Now who could ever believe at that point a little baby in an ark of bulrushes in the Nile River, under a decree, by the way, of death, under a decree of death, would someday, remember how, the, how Pharaoh had said every male child is to be destroyed? And this time he's given the commandment to all his officers, and all the Egyptians, when you see a male child born to the, of the Hebrews, you're to slay that male child. And here Moses is put in the safety of an ark of bulrushes. Now, how much safety is that? <laughs> you know, that ark of bulrushes could have been destroyed easily. But it held Moses. It held Moses until Pharaoh's daughter came down to the seaside and, and heard a baby crying, investigated, and found out there was a baby in there, and she knew it was a Hebrew baby. She could have easily had Moses drown right on the spot. 
Who could ever dream that Moses in that ark of bulrushes right there would someday, 80 years down the road, 80 years old when he does this, will come back to the land of Egypt after being gone for 40 years and lead a people, about 2 million people, out of the land of Egypt and across the Red Sea without the loss of one. Who knows, Esther, for thou art come to the throne for such a time as this. Moses did. Joseph did. David did. When you read him, David, where, where's he at when you read him? He's just a young teenage boy watching sheep uh, out under the stars, out there <laughs> in the countryside, under the stars, watching sheep. And yet, not long after that, he goes out on the battlefield with a sling and five smooth stones. And he's going to sling one of those five stones with divine accuracy. He's going to find the forehead of the giant Goliath, who's between nine and ten feet tall. And he's got a spear, he's got a shield, he's got a sword. Uh, I mean, huge uh, sword and a huge spear and a large shield for protection. But that stone finds the forehead of that giant and he's slain. David become the greatest king Israel ever had. When you first see him, he's just a little shepherd boy on the hillsides in the country watching his father's sheep. He was the right man at the right time, wasn't he? John the Baptist. Whether thou knowest thou hast come to the kingdom for such a time as this, John the Baptist came right on time. I can assure you, he came right on time. Isaiah the prophet said he would come. Malachi the prophet said he would come. He becomes a voice crying in the wilderness as a forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ. He came at the right time. He was God's man at the right time, was he not? So was Paul. But I'm going to tell you, when I think about this expression, I, don't, I think of it replying unto men apart from Jesus Christ. I don't have to doubt Jesus Christ came in at the right time. Do you? Galatians 4, 4, when the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem that was under the law. We might receive the adoption of sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth the spirit of his son to your hearts, crying what? Abba, Father. Jesus came on time. Jesus was the man of the hour. Jesus, my friends, uh, was uh, in the right place at the right time. He came according to God's divine timetable, and he came into this world and got the job done on the will of the heavenly Father. Whether knowest thou thou art here for such a time as this, Esther, you may be here through the providence of God. And I think Esther, and this is a turning point, I believe, in the life of Esther. It doesn't say it, but I'm sure when that saying came from Mordecai, her uncle, and that saying is, whether thou knowest I may have come to the kingdom for such a time as this, if she looked back in her life, she might have thought, well, how did I become queen? How did I become queen? I was a Jewish, little Jewish maid in captivity. And then I was one among many that came before the king to be examined by the king, to be evaluated by the king. And somehow or another, I was selected. <laughs> somehow or another, I was selected. It wasn't chance. It wasn't luck. She was selected. God in his providence, brother, moved upon the king, I believe. And he chose her. Of all the ones brought before her, I'm sure there was other beautiful young maidens that was brought before her, him. But somehow this one got his attention and he couldn't let it go. And she was chosen by the king to replace the former queen. If she began to think about something like that, I think she would have had to have thought, maybe I am in this place for such a time as this.
I, f- I firmly believe that every single one of us ought to pray every single day that we'd be where the Lord would have us. That we would depend upon the Lord to guide us and direct us. I've tried to pray that for over 48 years as, as a gospel minister. Lord, is it your will for me to be in this place? Is it your will for me to accept this position, accept this, this call, whatever? If I'm not mistaken, I, I do have a lot of confidence that the Lord has guided me and directed me along life's journey. I hope I'm still in the right place at this particular time. Knowest thou might be in this place, in the kingdom, for such a time as this? Here's a time to act, Esther. Here's a time to show courage and strength. And we're about to see what kind of woman she is. So far, remember up to this point, what do we know about Esther? She's a Jew, niece of Mordecai, the queen here. But now we begin to see something about Esther we have not seen before. Esther hears this, this message, and here's her reply. Then Esther bade them return Mordecai this answer. Go gather together all the Jews that are present at Shushan and fast ye for me and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maids will fast likewise and so I will go into the king which is not according to the law and if I perish, I perish. They're going to fast for three days in the trains. I've told you a couple of times in the book of Esther that the word prayer and pray is not in here. The word God is not in here. But I'm totally confident that they were praying on this occasion. Fasting and prayer go together. Remember the Lord told his disciples one time, uh, these things are done only through fasting and prayer. They go together. I cannot see them fasting for three days in these kind of circumstances and not praying to the God of glory, but it's not recorded for us. It's not in here, but I'm satisfied that they did. (laughs) Now, one of the brethren tonight, before we, uh, uh, church started, uh, came up to me and asked me the significance of the number three. <laughs> and uh, I said, well, we're going to see it tonight in the story of Esther. And he made mention about uh, Christ being the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. He said, what about, why didn't you just rise after the first day? <laughs> that number three, brother, in the Bible is a number of completion and satisfaction. And we find it all the way through the scriptures, all the way through. Um, 1 John 5, 7, there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. Jesus said, destroy this body or this temple in three days, what? I will raise it back again. When Jesus fed the great multitudes, recorded in Matthew chapter 15, uh, this is now the feeding of the 4,000 with the seven loaves and a few fishes. What's he say? He says, these multitudes have been with me how many days? Three days. Three days. When the children of Israel got ready to cross Jordan's river to go into the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded them to stay three days on this side. And for three days, they sat there watching that river at flood stage, wondering, no doubt, how are we going to get across? And for three days, the Lord let them see the impossibility of doing this on their own power. But after three days, the Lord gave them the solution. The Lord said, when the priests put their feet in the water, the water will part. When the priest touched the water with their feet, the water shall part, and then you'll cross dry shod to the other side. And after three days, that's exactly what took place. When Jesus went on top of the mountain of transfiguration, two men appeared with him, right? That makes a total of what? I believe three. When Christ was crucified on the cross, there were two others crucified with him, two thieves, one on each side. I believe that 
Council 3. When the Apostle Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, it said about what? 3,000 were added to the church, right? About 3,000 were added to the church, and 3,000 is divisible by three. That word number three is a number of completion that's found in the scriptures. She says, and all the Jews in Shushan, and you fast for me for three days and three nights, and me and my major will do likewise. And then I'm going to go into the king like you've asked me to do. And if I perish, I perish. That reminds me of the life of Paul that's recorded in Acts chapter 20. When he knew great danger lay before him in the city of Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 20, you'll find where the apostle Paul replied like this. He said, I count not my life dear unto myself, but I'm going to finish my, my course with joy and the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ to testify the gospel of the grace of God. Paul thought the gospel of God's wonderful grace was so important that he was willing to end his ministry right there at Jerusalem, if necessary. He said, I'm bound in the spirit to go to Jerusalem, and if I die, I die. And this is what Esther is saying right here. She says, I'm going to come before the king. I'm going to do it. And if I perish, I perish. And you see, Esther had a lot of obstacles in front of her. A lot of obstacles. First of all, it was against the king's law for her to do that. Number two, it was against the decree that had been issued that all the Jewish people were going to be killed. And number three, she had the fact that she was a woman going against her in that culture of that particular day. All this was against her. But it didn't matter how many was against her if the Lord was for her, right? <laughs> if the Lord was for her, and the Lord's going to be for her. Don't want to jump ahead in the next session. <laughs> But the Lord is going to be for her. She's going to go with the attitude, if I perish, I perish. Yes, I'm a woman that's against me in that culture. Yes, I, guess I got the law against me. Yes, I got the decree against me. But I got the Lord going with me. Just like so many of those in the Old Testament did when Hezekiah was threatened with the king of Assyria. He told the people of Israel, he says, with him is an arm of flesh. He says, but with us is the arm of God. And God has promised to fight our battles for us. He says, if God be for us, who can be against us? And God was for them on that occasion, was he not? And we're about to see that this plan of Mordecai has proven, has proven beneficial, right? He got the message to Esther. And then Esther now is willing to go before the king. And she says, if I perish, I perish. We're about to see what kind of courage Esther has. What kind of strength Esther has? Is she the person that's come to the king for such a time as this? I think we'll find out that she was.